citizens, we cannot escape history. That is what he said. That is what Abraham Lincoln said. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. We of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. No personal significance or insignificance can spare one or another of us. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. We even we here hold the power and bear the responsibility. Eleventh, 1970. Victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K, my brother, I gotta say, for someone who's been hitting the road and traveling, you look refreshed. And honestly, that's a good thing because we're diving into one Abraham Lincoln this afternoon. Professor K, my brother, how are you, sir? I'm okay. And as you know, I was down sort of in your territory. I was in St. Louis. I know that's the eastern part of your state. But I did mention your name in various places. Now they're warned not to not to let you in this. No, I'm See, kidding. can't take you anywhere. Well, I gotta ask, how did our show me state treat? you, Professor K, and the family. It was great. And in fact, the weather was fantastic. Had some good food while I was there. Saw friends of mine. It was great. Saw family and friends. We go down for family, but I have some friends down there. Somebody who maybe folks listening to this know her name, Maria Chappelle Nadal, one of my buddies. She was a representative from the University City Ferguson area of St. Louis. Then she was a state senator from that area. She now works for the county government. But in any case, she's a good buddy. And she's working on a great book. Someday she'll get it done. She's just learning how to write a book right now on environmental justice, environmental racism, because the district she represented was a, a dumping ground for the atomic waste materials from the Manhattan Project. 
And then developers literally created subdivisions and neighborhoods on top of that. I think even possibly the Amazon distribution warehouses. I mean, it's a terrible story and that's that's her ongoing project right now. Well, as we get this thing going, weeks on, you know, eventually, Professor K, I'd love for us to have more guests. We had Kitty on, what, a couple weeks ago. Let's bring on some more friends, yeah? Well, that's not a bad idea, you know? Not a bad idea. I'll try to figure out a good moment for that and I'll ask her if she'd like to join us. And part of your trip, you were sending me some pictures. You went to Lincoln's, was it the tomb or the memorial? As a matter of fact, good way to segue as well. Between Green Bay and St. Louis, about 100 miles north of St. Louis, 90, 100 miles, is Springfield, Illinois, which is essentially the political home, other than Washington, D.C., of Abraham Lincoln. And the other thing is, I don't know if people realize that although the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. is magnificent, I mean, I never fail when I'm in Washington, D.C. to go to the World War II Memorial, Lincoln Memorial, FDR Memorial, the Jefferson. It's just like a walk that I do each time I'm there. Keeps me connected in a kind of, I won't say spiritual way, but in a kind of historical romantic way to the to those kinds of figures. But in Springfield, you not only have the state capital of Illinois, which is a very magnificent building, and the original state capital from the 19th century. That's great. The downtown of Springfield, you know, it's old, like a lot of downtowns, a lot of the businesses have moved out, but it's filled with state government activities. And the original neighborhood of Springfield, where the Lincoln family, he and his wife and kids lived, it's still there. But most significantly, the thing that really draws me down there are two things. One is the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum, which I do like a great deal. And in a really moving way, the Lincoln Tomb is in Springfield. I always, whenever we go down, I, I build in that as part of the trip. Sometimes we stay overnight in Springfield and do some things. Sometimes we just stop at the cemetery, go into the tombs area and walk around in there. You know, it's like communing with Lincoln in a way. And then, of course, they have, you know, little statues of him inside of the tomb itself. And it was a good warm up in my mind for our conversation this week, which of course, I couldn't do because I was in Springfield and St. Louis. So here we are now. So when you think about Lincoln, Professor K, and maybe you thought about this as you're walking through the tomb, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, actually, the very first thing that comes to my mind when I think of Lincoln is the speech which we're going to build towards today, the Gettysburg Address. Look, I, I think unreservedly, Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt are the two greats, the two, truly the two greats. One, the greatest president of the 19th century, the other, the greatest president of the 20th. Can I debate which is even greater than the other? It would be a waste of time. And I acknowledge that for all of his faults and failings, that Washington was one of the great leaders in the early days of the making of an independent United States. So we've got Washington, Lincoln, and FDR. Most people agree with that. And at some point, not today, but later, maybe we could spend a day just talking about those three presidents in the Take Back America. But Lincoln was extraordinary when you consider the fact, interestingly enough, he was born in 1809, which coincidentally, purely coincidentally, is the year that Thomas Paine died. And I know people will get tired of my mentioning Paine, but Paine runs all the way through the American story. And the story of Lincoln is imbued with the spirit of Thomas Paine. So he was born in Kentucky, his family moved to Indiana, and he eventually grows up, he's a young man in Illinois, in New Salem, which is really nothing more than a village, kind of shacks put together. But it's worth noting that his mother died when he was young, his father remarried, and the woman he married, she was very influential in encouraging him to read. And I have a feeling he was decidedly more attached to his stepmother than he was actually to his father. They were Calvinists, they were Baptists, and they kind of had a sense of you know fatalism about them, these Baptists, that everything is all predetermined, that that's the Calvinist view of things, predestination. Individual action doesn't lead to heaven or hell, it's all 
predestination. But the thing that really bugged him about his father is also viewed by many a biographer as the very same thing that led him to oppose slavery. And when he actually witnessed slavery, he came out on the side of emancipation. His father, they didn't have a lot of money. His father would rent him out as a teenager, rent him out. And to him, that was not unlike a kind of slavery. He had to work for someone and whatever he received went to his father, his, in quotes, master, you might say. So a lot of biographers think that it's those kinds of early feelings of exploitation that might have primed him to oppose slavery later. I'm not a biographer of Lincoln. I'm a student of Lincoln. But the biographers of Lincoln that I really like, and I'm not telling you he's the greatest biographer. I think there are others who may have written things that are even more moving about Lincoln. James Oakes is one of them, Eric Foner. But Harold Holzer has written comprehensively about Lincoln. And what he writes is very, very well researched. Probably wrote more about Lincoln than anybody else, that's for sure. He and a guy named Norton Garfinkel did a book together titled A Just and Generous Nation, Abraham Lincoln and the Fight for American Opportunity. And it's really convincing in its portrayal of Lincoln as in some ways the first, at least presidential social democrat. And in many ways, in the 19th century, you can go from Payne, the social democrat, to Lincoln, the social democrat, which I'll get to in a moment. And then, of course, in FDR, you've got the social democrat of the 20th century. So Lincoln's mother encouraged him to learn how to read and speak. There's a little question. And it was his father, as I was saying before, was renting him out, which made him very unsympathetic towards his father. I mean, he thought, my God, you know, this is a form of exploitation. Well, he himself, as a young man, was pretty ambitious guy, whether it was going to be in business terms or political terms. He definitely wanted to make something of himself. One could argue he probably felt he wanted to make a difference, not only shaping his own life, which would be counter to the sort of Calvinist view of things, unless you view it as a Protestant ethic kind of thing, and that could well be. But he also clearly wanted to make a difference in the lives of others. And living in New Salem, where he was a store clerk, he didn't own the store, as I understood it. He worked for someone. He became interested in the politics of the Whig part. Probably the foremost Whig of the time was Henry Clay. And Henry Clay argued for the American system, capital A, capital S. And in the American system, the argument was not a laissez-faire role for government, but rather that the federal government and state governments as well should play an active role in promoting economic growth and development in order to create opportunities for Americans to make money in business or to make money in terms of work. The expression is a weird one, grow the economy, to build the United States as a strong nation. Now, of course, Henry Clay played a significant role in the Missouri Compromise, which opens the door in some ways to one free state, one slave state, right? So it's Missouri, the slave state, and Maine, I guess, was the, the free state. Lincoln is very much influenced by Henry Clay's American system. And he actually starts to imagine that public action could turn Salem into a significant little commercial town, commercial center. And the, the Sangamon River that runs through New Salem area, he imagined you could dredge it and make it an artery to get it onto the Mississippi and take goods down to New Orleans. And he himself actually did a flatboat trip down. The point I want to get to here is that he really was ambitious. Now, it's also the case that he while in New Salem, was reading some pretty progressive stuff. He read Thomas Paine's Common Sense, and that definitely influenced his understanding of politics, especially small d democracy. And he also read Thomas Paine's Age of Reason, Paine's criticism, his critique of organized religion. And Lincoln himself, by most accounts at that time, wrote a kind of Paineite little treatise or tract arguing for free thought. It wasn't quite atheistic, but along the lines of Thomas Paine's deism, a, you know, kind of a belief in God, but God not as an intervener, a decidedly unchristian or non-Christian version 
of God. And the same Lincoln began to imagine himself entering politics, which led his closest friends to get a hold of that document he wrote and throw it in the fire, knowing that if it was ever discovered and came out as something Lincoln had written would definitely cost him a political career. Back one time when we were visiting Springfield and we did the sort of Lincoln family tour around downtown Springfield, we went into the church that he and his family attended. And, you know, people completely misrepresent Lincoln as this God-fearing man. I mean, he had a strong sense of God that gets all the stronger during the war, the Civil War. But this is a guy who's decidedly influenced by Thomas Paine and the free thought of Thomas Paine. It was Mary Todd Lincoln who more likely was the one who dragged them to church, not Abraham Lincoln. But I said to the woman who was giving the tour in the church, I said, you do know that, that Lincoln was a free thinker, right? He wasn't a Christian. And she was in this sort of 19th century dress, this woman. I I definitely did not make a friend that day on that <laughs> tour. By the way, I did a similar thing. You might get a kick out of this when I did the tour of Independence Hall in Philadelphia and the ranger who gave the talk telling us what was going on inside during the you know, drafting and, and signing of the declaration. On the way out, I stopped to compliment him on his talk. But I said, you might really enhance your talk if you pointed out how Thomas Paine here in Philadelphia had written Common Sense, which then mobilized Americans in favor of independence and were pushing those men inside that room to come out for independence. The, the ranger wasn't very keen on what I was telling him. And I didn't want to push it too far. This guy, he was a big guy, this ranger. So I, I gave up on that. So you're not going to take a punch for pain. It's what you're saying. Professor. Well, wait, I, I, I would take the punch if he would promise to make sure that he would give Thomas Paine the credit <laughs> for what transpired. I wasn't going to take a punch for nothing at all. So Lincoln is influenced by Thomas Paine, relatively ambitious, subscribes to the American system where, sure, individual initiative matters, but really government could play a significant role in empowering people, both politically and economic. And I want to just read, if you don't mind, this is not inspirational, but I want to read to you what Lincoln in 1854 had to say about the role of government. And in 1854, by this time, he's already leaving behind the Whig party in favor of the new Republican party. And that's going to be the party that he will, of course, rise to political importance through. The legitimate object of government, he said, this is, this is in 1854, is to do for the people what needs to be done, but which they cannot by individual effort do at all or do so well for themselves. There are many such things. Some of them exist independently of the injustice in the world, making and maintaining roads, bridges, and the like, providing for the helpless, young and afflicted, creating common schools, which are public schools, basically, and disposing of deceased men's properties are instances. Now, that quote alone, Joe Biden should have been saying these past few weeks, reminding people of the legitimate object of government. Notice in that quote, Lincoln is not only proposing the infrastructure plan of roads, bridges, etc. He's also proposing a social infrastructure role for government. And I think that's what Biden should do. You know, the biggest problem we have with the Democrats is that they could make themselves ever more articulate and maybe inspire themselves if they realize the degree to which the words they need are there in the American story. And that's why you and I are taking back America. Yes, sir. So there we go. The other thing that comes up in all of this is though he would not have quoted Thomas Paine too openly. In my book, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, I have a section on Paine and Lincoln in which I note the echoes in Lincoln's speeches of Thomas Paine's writings. But it's not a direct quotation. It's an echo, you might say. What we do know is that Lincoln throughout his political career made the Declaration of Independence the foundation 
motivation and inspiration for all of his political arguments. And there's another set of words I'd like to read before we get on into the, the really fabulous stuff. This is something that is not readily available. I found it in a little book published by Penguin just called Lincoln Speeches. This was in August of 1858, not part of the Lincoln-Douglas debates to my knowledge. He says, think nothing of me. Take no thought for the political fate of any man whomsoever. Come back to the truths that are in the Declaration of Independence. You may do anything with me you choose if you will but heed these sacred principles. You may not only defeat me for the Senate, but you may take me and put me to death. While pretending no indifference to earthly honors, I do claim to be actuated in this contest, motivated in this contest, by something higher than an anxiety for office. I charge you to drop every paltry and insignificant thought for any man's success. It is nothing. I am nothing. Judge Douglas, the man who he is going to be challenging for the Senate seat in, in Illinois, Judge Douglas is nothing. And then he says, and this is italicized in his text, but do not destroy that immortal emblem of humanity, the Declaration of American independence. He's said things like this before, but you can't get more blunt than Lincoln is here as to the imperative of the Declaration's promise. He actually says, you may not only defeat me for the Senate, but you may take me and put me to death. And eventually, of course, that's exactly what happens in 1865 when Booth assassinates him. But do not destroy the Declaration of American Independence. So this is Lincoln, okay, who will become known for some as the great emancipator. For others, he'll be the greatest president of the 19th century. And clearly, this is a man who embraces the Declaration of Independence. Just as in the end, as we saw Frederick Douglass, as much as he recognized the continuing tragedy and the exploitation and oppression of slavery, he reaches back to that declaration. I guess we can move on, okay? Let's stay in 1858. There are those words of 1858 on slavery and democracy that Lincoln offers. And these are the kind of words that you would hear, I think it was in the Copeland music and lines that James Earl Jones will have recited as this episode opened. So I'll leave that to you, those dynamic lines that Lincoln offers in 1858. August 1st, 1858 on slavery as i would not be a slave so i would not be a master this expresses my idea of democracy whatever differs from this to the extent of the difference is not democracy exactly and i want to call to people's attention this which goes back in many ways to that book i referred to by harold holzer about a just nation and it's this when he says that he has in mind decidedly slavery itself we're talking about an age in which slavery is not just prevailing in the south it is threatening, literally, to take over the entire country. This is that decade of the 1850s where the South is really anxious about being overwhelmed by the North and the West, and they are determined, given the control they have over Congress and their role and power in the Supreme Court, that they are going to extend slavery throughout the United States, or eventually, which they will do, they will split from the United States. But Lincoln has in mind not only the slavery of African-Americans in the South and elsewhere where persisted out to the West, really when I think when he says that is that anyone who is continually subject to the commands of others for their employment with no opportunity to leave or to move on or to move up, that that too 
is not democracy. There's a sense that there cannot be democracy if there's not just freedom of movement, but also opportunity. That I think is really, really, really important. There's a later set of remarks of 1858 during the Lincoln-Douglas debate. If you don't mind, I'll start it and then I'll hand over to you. So let's do this together. This is in that debate with Stephen Douglas, who was prepared to allow states to decide for themselves whether or not they'll allow slavery. That is the issue that will continue in this country when these poor tongues of Judge Douglas and myself shall be silent. It is the eternal struggle between these two principles, right and wrong, throughout the world. They are the two principles that have stood face to face from the beginning of time and will ever continue to struggle. And I'll hand it over to you, Hartzell. The one is the common right of humanity, and the other, the divine right of kings. It is the same principle in whatever shape it develops itself. It is the same spirit that says, you work and toil and earn bread, and I'll eat it, no matter in what shape it comes, whether from the mouth of a king who seeks to bestride the people of his own nation and live by the fruit of their labor, or from one race of men as an apology for enslaving another race. It is the same tyrannical principle. The same tyrannical principle. And notice there, he doesn't even in that particular instance limit himself in terms of slaves. He extends this as something which has marked human history, and it is time to bring such history to an end is what he's basically projecting. And I think I was getting to this earlier. Lincoln is extraordinary given his humble beginnings. In that sense, like Thomas Paine, very humble beginnings. He becomes a phenomenal writer. Now, he reads a lot. And some of the things that he pronounces that are even associated with Lincoln himself, in essence, he sort of borrows. It isn't a plagiarism. It's that he is literally taking on words and then giving them a spin in speeches. For example, later when we get to the Gettysburg Address of the people, by the people, for the people, Similar words had been expressed by Daniel Webster up in Massachusetts and by Theodore Parker, who was an abolitionist and political activist. These men said such things, but Lincoln weaves these things together and they become all the more direct and powerful, as we'll see. I'm curious, do you think him inserting those homages is a show of his you know, political growth, his intellectual growth, or was it more rhetoric? You tell me. Well, again, I think for the beginning, democracy, small d democracy mattered powerfully to him, as you'll see. And it goes well back into the 1830s, his reverence for the founders and their creation of a democratic republic. What becomes all the more central, which is a reflection of the times in which he lived, is the imperative that democracy cannot abide slavery nor can it abide any kind of economic order which is not open and available to opportunity that working men and women, for that matter, should be able to move on, to move up, to rise up, to make a better life for themselves and their families. But he also believes that there's a role for government in all of this, as we'll see. Lincoln becomes, as I said earlier, a social democrat. That's his politics, social democracy. Now, the best example I can give you of that, aside from the evident antipathy he has to slavery, or for that matter, low-wage employment, is the fact that when he is president in 1862, he signs into law two decidedly social democratic bills. One is called the Morrill Act. It's the Land Grant Act. It's the law that basically gives federal lands to state governments to then turn those acreages, lands, into resources to create state universities. And in doing that, what he's basically saying, we're going to create a system of higher education, which will not be out of reach for the children of farmers and workers, that you should not have to come from an affluent 
wealthy family to gain higher education. And so every single state of the 50 states to this day, it continued after Lincoln's death, now has a state university known as the Land-Grant University. And I attended one as an undergraduate. Rutgers University is the Land-Grant University of New Jersey. In some cases, the universities already existed, but they then were elevated in importance with those land grants. That was Rutgers, which was founded in 1766, but 1862, it becomes the Land-Grant. My understanding is Princeton and Rutgers were competing for that land grant and Rutgers won out. Ha ha ha. <laughs> and I presume in the state of Missouri, the University of Missouri and its campuses are the land grant institution. It absolutely is. I've sat next to the plaque. Oh, fantastic. Well, he does not win the Senate seat from Douglas. But running as he did, he became noticed, significantly noticed by Eastern Republicans. And they invite him to New York, and he gives a, a very famous speech, the Cooper Union speech, which really he, he makes the argument that the founders did not ever support slavery. Yes, there was a compromise, but the best proof that they did not want to see slavery expand was the fact that the Northwest territories were not to include any slave states as they progressed. And that's the speech in which he becomes, if you like, prominent, truly prominent Republican. And ultimately, he does win the nomination from the Republican Party. He wins the presidency, in fact. But along the way, of course, the secession begins before he even becomes president. He's facing a nation that is itself dividing. And he had already said a nation cannot survive half slave and half free, which was his warning that if that moment comes, which empowers me to act to bring an end to slavery, we will do so. He's elected president and he sets out from Springfield to Washington, D.C. for his inauguration. In those days, a president was inaugurated in March. Long time between November and March. The last president to be inaugurated in March 1933 was Franklin Roosevelt. And in fact, he was almost assassinated. I think they were in a car in Miami with a prominent mayor, either the mayor of Miami or mayor of Chicago, and somebody attempted to assassinate the mayor, though it may have been Roosevelt that he tended to hit as well. The point is that after that, they moved it up to January, much too long a time, not to mention that you elect a president and the old president still sitting there as a lame duck. And in the face of the depression, there was not a hell of a lot that could be accomplished. So Lincoln is making his way to Washington. And in in February of 1861, he actually first gave a speech just like the words I'm going to read to you now in Trenton, New Jersey. It's a kind of cute speech he gave. Let me read to you from that speech, the one in Trenton, New Jersey. It says, may I be pardoned if on this occasion I mention that way back in my childhood, the earliest days of my being able to read, I got hold of a small book, such a one as few of the younger members have ever seen. Weems' Life of Washington. This was this book supposedly of Washington's life which invented the story about Washington chopping down the cherry tree and telling the truth. I mean, it was a book full of BS. But as a boy, he read this and he says, I remember all the accounts there given of the battlefields and the struggles for the liberties of the country. And none fixed themselves upon my imagination so deeply as the struggle here at Trenton, New Jersey. That's when Washington's army had been driven across the state of New Jersey. The remnants of the army were on the Pennsylvania side of the river. And Washington decides he's going to attack Trenton on the morning after Christmas because the German soldiers, the Hessian mercenaries, are probably drunken and sleeping off their beer and, and other brandies in bed. This is when Thomas Paine provided the pamphlet, The Crisis. These are the times of Chime and Salt, which inspired these soldiers to cross the river and win the Battle of Trenton. The crossing of the river, the contest with the Hessians, this is Lincoln's words, the great hardships endured, all fixed themselves on my memory more than any single revolutionary event. And you all know, for you have all been boys, 
how those early impressions last longer than any others. I recollect thinking then, boy, even though I was, that there must have been something more than common that those men struggled for. I am exceedingly anxious that that thing which they struggled for, that something even more than national independence, that something that held out a great promise to all the people of the world to all time to come, I am exceedingly anxious that this union, the Constitution, and the liberties of the people shall be perpetuated in accordance with the original idea for which that struggle was made. Now, later, when he crosses the river himself over to Pennsylvania, he gives a speech in Independence Hall, and there he says similar things. This is what he says in Philadelphia. I have never had a feeling politically that did not spring from the sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence. I have pondered over the toils that were endured by the officers and the soldiers of the army who achieved that independence. And by the way, he was getting applauded over and over and over again when he was giving the speech. I have often inquired of myself what great principle or idea it was that kept this confederation so long together. It was not the mere matter of the separation of the colonies from the motherland, but something in that declaration giving liberty not alone to the people of this country, but hope to the world for all future time. It was that which gave promise that in due time, the weights should be lifted from the shoulders of all men and that all should have an equal chance. This is the sentiment embodied in the Declaration of Independence. And by the way, Thomas Paine himself said, the guy who wrote the pamphlet, Common Sense That Called for Independence, said, if it was only a question of independence, it would not have been worth it. The question really had to do with creating a democratic republic. And he's talking here, Lincoln, about the imperative of freedom. And notice he says, all men. This was a sign that he knew what was going to happen. He could see it happening, the secession. But he also knew that the war to come was that you could not have a nation half slave and half free. And the challenge was to make it free, north, south, and west. And with that, we wrap up part one of this episode of Taking Back America. Myself, Professor Harvey K., and our special guest, Abraham Lincoln. Next week, on Tuesday, October 5th, we get into part two of our conversation on Abraham Lincoln. He's in D.C., inaugurated. The war is about to begin. And with that, we'll work our way to the Gettysburg Address. My friends, get excited. We're taking back America, reclaiming that radical history. Ooh, it feels good, don't it? Also, real quick while I got you, this is the last day to vote for the Pitch Awards, the best of 2021. We got nominated for Best Local Podcast. I got Best Radio Personality and Best Personality. And it'd be dope to bring one home, yeah? Best Local Podcast, update your bio, two-time Best Local Podcast. That would be dope. ThePitchKC.com for all details. I think it's vote.thepitchkc.com. A good day to be a Kansas Cityan, my friends. Always a good day to be a Kansas Cityan. That's all I got. My name's Hartzell. We'll see you in the morning. Bye. Going straight to one place, right to Kansas City. The KC Morning Show. You're listening to the KC Morning Show.